A very good morning to you. Welcome to this morning's event. I'm so pleased you could join us today. We are talking about upskilling and reskilling as part of the well-being of the European workforce, something that anyone who's watching this morning no doubt feels personally as well. So current major issues we know have profoundly changed the way we work. The workplace has shifted, the boundaries between private and professional have blurred because of the pandemic. It's really changed the way that millions of European workers are moving in and out of office spaces and questioning what does it mean to have a healthy workspace. The most important shifts in the job market, of course, have been exacerbated by the pandemic, but globalization, digitalization and robotization, as well as the green transition, have all had an impact in how we work. So today we're going to talk about that with the All Policies for a Healthy Europe. Please do follow us online, use the hashtag Healthy Europe and do follow the account Wellbeing EU as well as the main Euractive account. We're going to talk about what it means. We're going to ask the lots of, of difficult questions about what policies are needed as well to ensure and protect workers in the ongoing situation. So in 2020, the European Commission launched its Pact for Skills initiative, and that has public and private organizations taking concrete actions to upskill and reskill people in support of a fair and resilient recovery. We know that resilience is the watchword for everything as we build back better or build forward better. This is what we're going to talk about today the upskilling and reskilling program that takes into account the well being of the workforce is absolutely paramount. We're going to start off uh, with some introductory remarks from the European Commission telling us a bit about what their pact is, what the aspirations are going forward, and then we'll move into a panel discussion. As always, I encourage the audience to ask questions as well. Please use the buttons on your screen to send questions to our panelists. You can please keep them concise. You can address them to an individual panelist or to the entire panel, but do please note which one that is, and we'll try to get through as many as possible in the next hour and a bit. So with that, I'm going to hand over for introductory remarks to Manuela Geleng, who is the Director for Jobs and Skills in the DG Employment, Social Affairs and Inclusion at the European Commission. Manuela, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We are keen to hear your outline of what we really need to look at. So please set the scene for us for our debate to come. Good, good morning to you all. I hope you hear me well. Uh, we have here some, uh, some slides for you as, as well. And I, uh, many thanks for inviting me to this uh, really important uh, event. Um, indeed, uh, if we can go to the next slide, please. Yes, indeed, uh, the last 18 months uh, gave a, a clear acceleration to uh, digitalization. Uh, we see that we have been all in, uh, in, uh, in telework, so remote work really increased from the 5% we used to have to 37%. And indeed, uh, studies uh, say now that probably it's about 35-40% the amount of jobs that today are teleworkable, but clearly in the future this could be uh, many more. Uh, obviously, there are differences uh, among, among member states that reflect their infrastructure as well as their economic uh, configuration. 
this trend to, to telework is, is uh, not new, as we have seen. It was already there before the pandemic, uh, along with globalization and demographic aging. But clearly, uh, digitalization came at the forefront uh, with, the, uh, with, the, with the pandemic. And uh, when we look at the skills, we see that today 57% of adults uh, have only basic digital skills. We are a bit better with the young people. 19% uh, of them have, uh, lack, uh, have basic uh, digital skills only, but we both lack ICT specialists. And this is uh, uh, really a, 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 a skills gap that we need, we need to fill. Also on uh, the green transition, uh, we will uh, require um, new, new skills if we want to uh, reach the ambitious targets that the union has set itself for 2030, namely to cut uh, emissions by 55%. Uh, so, uh, uh, getting out of the pandemic, managing the digital and the green uh, transition, this will uh, require upskilling and reskilling. Uh, and uh, uh, this is where I now would like to uh, go more in depth into uh, this skills uh, development. And perhaps, yes. So, um, Clearly, skills now are at the top of, of the political agenda. Perhaps you know that EU leaders uh, in Porto welcomed the setting of a target of 60% of adults participating in training every year. And this target should be achieved latest by 20, uh, 2030. I think this is a very important uh, recognition that without skilled workers, uh, we won't be able to make the change that the green and transition and the digital transition require, require, require from us. So uh, the European skills uh, agenda that was adopted last year uh, sets out a number of important initiatives. Some of them are already uh, ongoing and I will come to the Pact for Skills in a moment. Some are coming. And let me refer to uh, an initiative that the Commission will put forward in December this year in the form of a Council recommendation on the individual learning accounts, which puts adults in the driving seat for their own learning and uh, so that they can determine their own professional path. So it's an incentive for individuals to take up and reskill activities. Together with this uh, initiative, we will also propose a European approach to micro-credentials. Nowadays, if we want to upskill and reskill, you take short learning courses. But it's important that these courses are recognized both for the employer and both for the individual that takes the effort to go through um, the training and that he or she can demonstrate what she or he actually has learned and is able to do. But now uh, I think the Pact for Skills was the first initiative we took under the skills agenda. And I think it's a very important one 
because it really puts the focus on the need that we need to join forces. Stakeholders have to come together and build partnerships, uh, whether it is at national, at regional, at local, or at sectoral industrial level. I think uh, through the Pact for Skills, we have, uh, um, we have brought together large partnerships and we still hope that uh, many more will join um, the Pact for Skills. Here we are working with uh, businesses, social partners, public authorities to set up large-scale partnerships uh, in all industrial ecosystems that have been identified in, um, in the industrial European industrial strategy. Let me mention some areas where uh, these economic sectors have already engaged in concrete commitments of the workforce, like the automotive sector, the defense sector, um, uh, microelectronics sector. But more large-scale partnerships are uh, on the way uh, to, to come forward, and we really welcome uh, this, because it is indeed by joining forces that we can achieve uh, our aim. Everyone has to play, obviously, their, their part. At European uh, level, I mentioned the skills agenda, um, the initiatives we are going to take, the pact for skills, uh, but also um, the fact that upskilling and reskilling lifelong learning is the key principle the first principle of the european pillar of social right it's clearly on the top of of the agenda and what we also have is an unprecedented budget both through the next um, generation uh, uh, eu so the recovery and resilience facility foresees as one of the seven um, priorities uh, the um, skills, so it really highlights this. But let me also un underline that within the uh, EU budget for the next seven years, the European Social Fund, among other funds, but clearly the European Social Fund focuses very much on upskilling uh, the workforce. Nevertheless, uh, the European uh, level cannot do it alone. Actually, it's it's complementary to the efforts that can be done at national, regional, at local level by all um, in all those that get involved. So, we I really would like to call on the importance for more public and private funding if we need uh, if we want to match uh, the ambition to reach. Uh, to the 60% of adults that should engage in training every, every year. Because uh, this target of 60% of all adults engaging in training every year is not just a nice-to-have objective. It is absolutely essential if we want uh, our economy to remain cohesive uh, our economy to receive, remain competitive and resilient, and our society to remain cohesive. Thank you. Thank you very much, Manuela, for setting out what we really need to look at. I, I'm uh, 
very keen to hear about uh, further developments and, and to discuss with you as, as we go into our panel discussion. But as I say, we do have some great speakers for you today who are going to look at these issues in more depth and give their different perspectives on how they view it. So let me introduce to you now our panelists. We have Anne-Marie Munz, who is the Managing Director for Labour Strategy at Randstad and one of the Healthy Europe Corporate Knowledge Partners. Thank you very much. Andy Bladen is the Director of Ecosystems and Membership at ECH Alliance. Guy de Grau is Vice President of the European Federation for Company Sport. And Elisa Mohamedou is the Head of the OECD Centre for Skills. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us today. We're going to do a quick round of introductions and uh, you're going to set out your stalls and give us a, a, an overview of where you see the current landscape in, in, at the moment. So Anne-Marie, let me start with you. Let me give you the floor. Tell us what you're doing. Set the tone. Give us an introduction to Randstad and the labour market in transition and tell us what you think. Thank you. Um, yeah. Is, are we getting the slides now or is this just an introduction? Yeah, we're getting the slides. Thank you. Well, let me start with Randstad. Randstad is the, 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 the number one uh, HR services provider uh, in the world. Uh, well, we, we provide people with work, uh, temporary work, permanent work, but we also skill a lot. Uh, to, to give you a couple of figures, um, on a day, uh, on a daily basis, we place more than, well, we place about 600,000 people in work, decent, sustainable work. And on a yearly basis, we train about 300, 350,000 people. So a large private employment services um, and out there to share its its knowledge and its expertise. And, and starting with that, what we see actually is a labor market that is just as the economy is defined by shortages these days. We have seen a rapid recovery um, post-COVID and shortages are on the rise in all kinds of sectors, be it hospitality, uh, logistics, retail, there is a shortage of people. At the same time, we still have a high, a too high level of unemployment, particularly young people, Southern and Eastern Europe. So this is what we call a mismatch. And what we sadly see or have to take into account is that COVID-19 has accelerated a couple of these mismatch trends. First of all, hybrid work, huh? as we all do these days, although I'm in the office today, which is really great, um, but hybrid work here to stay, how to optimize it, how to, to prevent people having more burnouts, huh? how to, have more well-being in your workforce. A uh, new challenge. Uh, upskilling and reskilling are uh, the theme of the day. And you know, I was very happy with uh, uh, the, the, the story of the commission. Um, unprecedented amount of funds. Great. Yes, let's use them. Because what we see is the pace is not high enough. The partnerships are sometimes not strong enough. And there might be some serious structural barriers that need addressing. And then what we also see is talent uh, workers uh, on the move. In, in the US, they already call it a great resignation, people leaving their job at masses. Here in Europe, we also see a lot of mobility, more mobility than ever between sectors. Um, so mobility, hybrid work, 
up, upskilling, reskilling, but then again, there are people in weaker positions, uh, the minorities, young people, people with less income, less training, and they have suffered the most in, in, in this era. Polarization, digitalization, aging, all these meta trends still need addressing. One of the things we need to do, in our view, is address labor markets, labor market regulation, labor market policies, because we need to enhance and drive more mobility, flexibility and agility. This is a wish from employers, but certainly also from workers. Uh, a fit for purpose labor market that really drives your career, that drives transitions, that facilitates transitions. Moving on to the next slide. Um, what we feel is a, a absolute must is more public-private partnerships between public employment services and private employment services. It's the theme of our recently uh, launched Sustainability at Work series. Uh, it's, it's named Toward 2030 Together. And what it does is, is it describes a lot of labor market projects uh, directed at unemployed people with a weaker position on the labor market. We are, are uh, conducting together with a lot of partners, uh, be it public employment services, municipalities, governments. Um, and we show what the worth is of these partnerships. We also show that whatever we do, more collaboration is needed. And what we see in Europe that certainly, and it's again, Eastern and Southern European countries, they don't cooperate, the public employment services. They're with the private ones. They feel competition or fear. We don't know. We cannot get a foot in between there. Well, it should be collaboration on strength. We complement each other. We, have, as Randstad, are more than willing to share data. We have a lot of labor markets insights. We know what talent wants and we want to collaborate and cooperate because at the end of the day, the goal of both of us is the same. Putting people to work, decent work, sustainable work. So in that, um, uh, and next slide, please, in uh, the, the sustainability at work uh, publication, it's three parts. The first part is on this public-private partnership. What is needed? How is needed? How can it be achieved? The second part is on a model which can be used, a model which is a Dutch uh, practice, a, a, a public-private partnership we set up in 2010 together with the municipalities. In the Netherlands, the municipalities are responsible for providing social security uh, benefits, unemployment benefits to long-term unemployed. And yeah, you know, since 2010, so we have a lot of experience, we have a lot of evaluation and a lot of figures. And what we see, um, and that's the lessons learned, which I will share in a minute, is that if you do this well, you have a four times, yes, a four times higher chance of, of employment for participants. So this is really a best practice. Um, and we also show that the, 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 the well-being physically and mentally of the participants increased and that they stay in their jobs. So, next slide, please. What we have learned is a couple of lessons. And I would like to stress, and they are on this slide to read for you, and I would like to stress the following. One of the things when we talk with public employment services, they say, hey, you only take the easy ones, cherry picking. No, 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 no. One of the lessons is generate a large influx of, of talent. 
don't cherry pick. The program should be open to all that receive social benefits, social security, and are able to work without considering their distance, without stigmatization. So open to all, no cherry picking. That's one. Then it's a very much an individual thing. Uh, training and coaching, because uh, and training, coaching, uh, skilling, that's what we're talking about, should be on the basis of an individual assessment. What is this person's needs, wants, where is their challenges, what's the public-private uh, balance in his life, the wants, the wishes, the career path. And then you have a reality check. A reality check, okay, if this is a job you want, what's the future of that job? Is, that, is it that bright? Does it fit? Um, because we have the data and analytics and we can tell the person maybe she should have a think about it because that job will be out of the labor market in the coming five years or it's an excellent fit that's a bright choice so the awareness the reality check with data that's an important one but on an individual basis manage those expectations and then skill 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 but in skilling uh, it's not the old boring classroom because we are often talking with to people uh, and, and about people that don't like classrooms. They have a lower education because they left classrooms. They might have hated it, who knows? So training is a lot of on the job training. Make it fun, create that passion, create that well-being, and then they'll land that job and they'll have that career. And the last lesson is keep on monitoring the talent after they have landed the job. We have seen they have done really well. So I hope this, this sheds some light on how you can deliver public-private cooperation, but also shed some light on how we should look at some structural barriers still out there that prohibit public-private collaboration. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's a great comprehensive look at what we're going to discuss in, in the next hour. Andy, let me move on to you um, and give me your, you know, viewpoints on what we're, what we're talking about and even if you want even at this early point a reaction to what you've heard so far well thanks for that a very interesting approach and i think one which we with the european connected health alliance understand we see the whole area of skills for health in the same way as we've addressed many of the other challenges around health and that's using our ecosystems to connect what we see as a, a whole series of dots around the field of health and the skill shortage. So I'm going to talk today about how we use our ecosystems, where they are, and how specifically, you know, to, to drill down how we specifically target the area of skills. But using the same methodology, which is important, as we always start by leading with a need. So just a little bit about us. We're a member organization. We with a global health connector. Many of you will know of us. We're very much involved with all policies for health and, and thanks for the invitation today. But we've, we've been now over the last 10 years building up a series of what we call digital health ecosystems. People understand the phrase a little bit more now, but as you can see by the diagram in front of you, it's where we bring all the stakeholders of health together, not just the professionals, not just the doctors, but all of them. So you'll see their patient groups as well as policymakers, funders as well as companies, because we think without all those stakeholders, these things become talking shops. What we actually want to see is action. So we use our ecosystems to 
match in permanent gatherings need and solution to enable collaboration by breaking down those silos that exist in healthcare, the same ones that were there when I joined 30 years ago. They're there now preventing people getting the skills necessary to, to skill up as part of the new challenges we've heard from, from our last couple of speakers. We're also seeing the same silos talking just about skilling up digital healthcare professionals without thinking about the unpaid carers. How do we expect people to use the new tools we, we bring in, put in front of them, if they're not being given the right skills? So we're also looking at transforming healthcare. And of course, the same with our other model with, with our ecosystems is we see this as a, an economic opportunity because why wouldn't um, industry step up to the challenge with this? Why don't we see this as an opportunity rather than a burden? Those ecosystems are now international. We've been building up a collection of these, and you'll see in my next slide how that, that, that network has built up to a huge scale with our latest opening in Japan earlier on in September. But you can see there across Europe, we've got deep networks of ecosystems across countries that are passionate around collaboration. That collaboration has meant, them to do, meant that we have, have come with our ecosystems and ask them what were their what were their key areas they want to collaborate on and the number one topic of every single ecosystem that we spoke to all 70 of them was around digital skills skills for health as we call it so what you'll see in the next slide is that we've developed a brand new package where we've got a number of thematic innovation ecosystems which allow our, our ecosystems to collaborate on a deep dive on a number of areas whether they're mental health or um, health procurement but more specifically for today around the area of digital skills for health so back earlier on in the year we along with the European Commission kicked off our first thematic innovation ecosystem on skills for health and looked at a number of areas and needs around the field of skills and then our ecosystems took over because they know they've got those stakeholders they've got those dots locally where the specialists come from so they can bring together need and solution the best practice the the, the policy maker input so we brought together our ecosystems from south denmark who excel excel at skills development and skills assessment in digital health and our colleagues from the Melbourne ecosystem in Australia. Australia, just think about that. that so trying to connect up the dots between two, two continents on this because it's a vital issue. And they're building a series of gatherings around skills for health, targeting three areas. One, unpaid carers. Two, skilled carer, or carrying up the, the carer workforce. And three, that whole area of skilling up digital health professionals. So what we've been able to do is pull out and tease out examples of best practice already. Let me give you three examples, because I'm conscious of time today. I want to get down to getting some discussion about how we actually collaborate a bit better on this. Let me give you three examples. We brought in one of our members, and, and all our members who join us take part in this ecosystem. So one of our member organizations, the 800th member organization that joined the, the ECH Alliance, an organization called EU Carers, they know exactly the, 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 the pinch points for carers around the skills needed to provide ongoing care for people at home, especially during the pandemic. 
So we've been able to showcase that, not just within our thematic ecosystem, but with the American Telemed Association across in the USA, because it's pertinent there too. We've been able to also take that example to Latin America, where we'll be featuring them uh, again during um, some of our ecosystem partner events there. We've also been able to bring in the second of our expertise, which is a firm based in Northern Ireland, another member of the European Connected Alphines, called Connected Academy. This was an industry-led, just think about this, an industry-led approach to developing skills during the pandemic to both recruit, onboard, and skill up domiciliary care. That I, I, I did that, that was my job when I first kicked off in healthcare, to train people up. You physically have to watch them because you're talking about handling and lifting and, and safety measures. That had to be done in the pandemic remotely. So they've had to onboard at a pace and scale never seen before. Fantastic, great practice from an organization, but also skill them up at the same time. So that's Connected Health or the Connected Academy um, operating in Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland in the UK. And then lastly, I want to give you an example of a national program, again led by one of our members, the HSE in the Republic of Ireland. They've developed a national program to help skill up the workforce in many different ways, which we think is an exemplar. So I have a call out for, for colleagues today. If you're interested in finding out about these, come and contact me, andy at echalliance.com. I will connect you and get you linked in and connected with those ecosystems. And we can start connecting some dots around skills for health. Thank you very much. Thank you, Andy. Absolutely fascinating. I'm glad that you were able to bring those real world examples to us. So we now have something to refer to when we're going uh, back and forth in our discussion. Guy, let me turn to you and give me your uh, opening remarks to set the scene for where you're coming from. Okay, thank you very much. Well, uh, my name is Guy, Guy de Grover. I'm uh, from Belgium, coming from Belgium. I'm Vice President of the European Federation for Company Sport. And I'm in uh, uh, company sport as a volunteer uh, since '83. Uh, the European Federation for Company Sport is a non-profit uh, organization and is in Europe the leading organization in the field of company sport. Our goal is to uh, promote and develop a physical activity, movement and sport practice in the professional and environment in Europe. <coughs> And we do this through the organization of uh, summer and winter company sport games. But let's me move, let me move to my topics of today. Well, uh, we all know COVID has uh, considerably changed the work operations. Uh, that is no breaking news. Remote working, uh, temporary unemployment, um, virtual meetings, uh, they all have become the new reality. We have, in our homework, we have appreciated the upsides of remote working. Uh, we had, for instance, time to drive the kids to school. We could avoid traffic jams, but we also had to cope with some uh, negative aspects of homeworking. Uh, there was no social contact with colleagues, loneliness, sometimes depression. In the meantime, 
we have returned to the office slowly, but we have returned. And this return is for lots of people, lots of people very hard uh, because of they have to adapt to the office rhythm, uh, the timetable, uh, the time clock. We all had forgotten about those things. Good thing about all that is that uh, at the end of the month, uh, we get paid. But even now, this money is not enough. Since uh, the pandemic, uh, we want more. Uh, we want an increased effort uh, from the company to uh, respond to our uh, increased needs and altered needs. And that brings me to my second point, social innovation. <clears throat> uh, in the aftermath of the pandemic, uh, many organizations look at new ways of uh, addressing their workers, changing social, uh, emotional, physical and financial needs. This means that a company has to reshape, to remodel, to review, to examine new organizational models uh, and means to measure the effectiveness of the well-being programs. Of course, social uh, uh, innovation cannot be done overnight. It takes some time and commitment, and it also needs the help on an active collaboration of authorities, uh, business world, social and public organizations, sports sector. And in this context, sport and uh, physical activity can become a tool to uh, help improving the uh, well-being of the worker, to boost his mental health. And finally, to my third uh, point of today, sport can be used by the managers for training purposes, for skill acquisition. Uh, let me give you a simple example. Some, some years ago, the French uh, postal service, La Poste, has implemented the future jobs system, uh, which is partially uh, subsidized by the French government, who pays during three years the salary of young, semi-skilled and unskilled employees and unemployed youngsters. These jobs are a first working experience and a chance for uh, for those future postmen to acquire a qualification. Through their own uh, training uh, structure, uh, La Poste provides the young employee, employees with uh, multi-sport and uh, physical activities and train them the values of uh, uh, equity, uh, teamwork, leadership, uh, and respect of the rules, of the company rules. And they, they get the help from the French Federation for Companies Sport in doing that. Uh, they, 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 the, the French Federation uh, also participates in developing uh, the prof professional skills of the youngsters. Uh, for example, they uh, learn them the, uh, the client relations, an important aspect, of course. Uh, you have to know that uh, <clears throat> in this example, some youngsters at the moment of their integration into the uh, uh, company, 
they um, they do not have the right working attitude. Uh, they arrive late at work. They uh, do not respect the company rules. Uh, they watch videos on their computer. Fantastic for them, of course, but not for the for the company for La Poste. That is why the, uh, the La Poste uh, contacted the French Federation for Company Sport, who is authorized and uh, certified to uh, deliver educational programs. And together they created uh, sports-based educational modules. Uh, the uh, situations encountered in the company were put into parallel with uh, uh, situations in the world of sport. Uh, and in the training sessions, the youngsters are put in sport-related situations. Uh, let me give you a simple example. Uh, the youngsters had to imagine the following situation. You are appointed as a referee for a football game of the famous Paris Saint-Germain football club. Can you tell me uh, when you will arrive in the football stadium? All of them replied, well, I will be there at least 20 minutes before the game, before the kickoff of the game. And then the instructor said, oh, if that is the case, why do you always arrive late at work? So this is a simple example of how sport can help uh, developing uh, skills in the workplace. Uh, maybe later in the debate, I will have the opportunity to give you another example uh, another concrete uh, example. So, so far, my intervention. Jennifer, the floor is yours again. Thank you, Guy. I'm, uh, I'm glad you mentioned Paris Saint-Germain. I'm a big football fan myself, so I will be possibly pressing you for more examples related to soccer as we go on. Um, Elisa, uh, let me turn to you. I know you have some slides prepared as well. Um, give us your perspective to set out the tone for what you want to talk about in this debate. Thank you, thank you, Jennifer, and uh, and uh, thank you all for also having us in this what is already a very stimulating event. Um, so, at the Center for Skills, we um, support countries to achieve better economic and uh, social outcomes by taking a whole of government approach and engaging with stakeholders to develop and implement better skills policies. And we believe that maintaining uh, good health of individuals does not only include physical health, but also mental health uh, and well and well-being at the workplace and at home. And that a well-functioning health sector and skilled workforce actually play a crucial role in maintaining good, good health for all, as highlighted as well in the recent uh, pandemic. So in the next slide, um, I'd like to just focus a little bit on our report Skills Outlook which focused in uh, this year on uh, learning for life. And um, I believe the organizers will also include a link to it in the chat. So labor markets um, are of course in constant state of flux, uh, shaped by long life experience, expectancy, digitalization, climate change, and most recently, of course, the uh, COVID-19 pandemic as Manuela earlier mentioned. And these factors 
result in a constant creation and elimination of uh, jobs in different sectors. For instance, uh, the OECD projections indicate that more than 30% of jobs will require substantially different tasks and skills in the near future. So the report highlights that lifelong learning, reskilling, and upskilling are key processes in order to for individuals to adapt to these constantly evolving job requirements. Of course, one sector that has experienced uh, dramatic changes today and will continue to evolve in the future is the health sector. Um, if we look at uh, data only from the US, the report estimates that 13 of the 30 occupations that are projected to grow the fastest by 2030 are in the health care sector. So, of course, population, uh, population aging and the associated need to support the elderly are fundamental drivers of this labor market dynamic. But of course, despite this uh, long-term trend, the COVID-19 pandemic also impacted the healthcare sector. For example, the demand for community health workers increased by more than 10%. So to aid economic recovery in the short terms, countries must minimize skills shortages and ensure that upskilling and reskilling efforts are targeted and timely. So we therefore look into options for this. And for example, the skills required for community health workers, which occupations utilize adjacent skills, um, similar skill sets are those of education and career counselors and how the supply of training programs can be adjusted. Um, in the next slide, the, the next report we will do, the next Skills Outlook 2023, for which we will soon start actually issuing working papers that have some of the insights already is on recovery and resilience. And we aim to build a framework that focuses on the recovery from the pandemic, but also on how to create resilient and inclusive societies and economies. The importance of health will be reflected in the work, uh, where one of the core topic actually is going to be the interrelated nature of skills and health. Uh, we'll cover how the COVID-19 pandemic has highlighted the skills that are crucial for promoting good health and how health, including physical and again mental health, in turn promotes skills development and use. And uh, finally, in the next slide, um, the health of workers is affected, of course, by many interrelated processes. Uh, some processes like megatrends, such as climate change, are currently ongoing and longer lasting. Um, while others are unexpected shocks, uh, like the COVID-19 pandemic. These transformations have the potential to change how we perceive human health and the skills required to mitigate health risks. The COVID-19 crisis, for instance, unprecedentedly, of course, impacted the well-being of workers across the world. Besides the, the risk of being infected with the virus itself, the pandemic highlighted the risks factors generally associated with poor mental health. Many workers experience interruptions at work in the form of telework, uh, job retention schemes, or unemployment. Um, while telework has allowed for more flexible working arrangements for some workers, again, not all of the workers uh, can benefit from teleworking. And even when they do, it also blurs the boundaries between work and leisure which can increase feelings of detachment and uh, from work and social isolation. 
Climate change, on the other hand, um, with high pollution levels and extreme temperatures and their environmental consequences are associated with health risks. And these developments can also lower skill development and cognitive performance through their effects on the body and brain. Uh, the knowledge society, of course, um, health is also interrelated with knowledge societies that we take part in. During the ongoing COVID-19 crisis, for instance, technology and uh, social media have been used on a massive scale to keep people informed and safe. But these communication channels are also used uh, to spread false or misleading information. And we seek to study the potential health risks uh, associated with such infodemics and the role of media literacy and health literacy in reducing vulnerability to such risk and mapping the distributions of risks and skills across countries. And of course, the work context itself also matters for the well-being of uh, workers. Um, for example, one factor that is important is the decision-making authority workers have and high levels of psychological uh, demands coupled with low levels of autonomy can have actually negative health and psychological stress uh, outcomes for workers. So autonomy must also, of course, be balanced with guidance and support. And these examples just uh, show how health is linked to many pressing global issues and that its importance in today's world and work environment cannot be ignored or, or viewed in isolation. And individuals with high skills enjoy better health. So hence the, the lifelong learning, retaining, retraining and upskilling will play an essential role in ensuring good health for all. And we need more data. And I'm glad that actually Anne-Marie is ready to share the data they have. And I'll certainly reach out to look into it. But um, these are the, the type of work that we will need to do. And uh, with that, I'll hand over to you back, uh, Jennifer. Thank you very much, Elisa. I, I always like to hear when our panelists have some great interaction with each other and want to ask each other for, for information. And I think you've mentioned a key word there as well, which is data, because we can't really make proper analysis of current situations without the right sort of data to look into it. So I want to ask a, a sort of general question to the panel, which is about measurement and about how we understand a, a situation, because you cannot actually move forward with effective policies unless you've done the research and the background. Amory, perhaps you could talk about the need for good background information and good data. Yeah, but, uh, yeah uh, of course, and thank you for that question because it's so relevant. Um, uh, labor market, it's about people. Uh, it's also about data. We at, at Ransat, we have a strategy called tech and touch or better touch and tech. Uh, it's the people, but it's the people powered by the tech powered by data. Um, what we do, and I said it, is try to, to look for the best possible job for the talent that knock at our doors. And in doing so, you need data. You need channels, you need tech. And that's not scary, it's just what it is. I said also in, in collaborating, and, and thank you, uh, um, Elisa, for, for taking that up, in collaborating public-private, you need to share the data. We're, we are very open to that. 
because we have that expertise. So um, we know in what kind of jobs people work. We also know in what kind of jobs there's a demand. We know what kind of CVs there are around at this moment in the labor market. We know where the shortage are. We know where the skilling is. And I'll give you one example, which I really like to share, which is so worrisome to me. Um, in runs of the Netherlands, we offered a, a free training course to our attempts, to all of them, actually. It's a program called Boost. Uh, you can look it up. It's it's whatever you need, and not, it's not long-term skilling, but whatever you need to become more effective, free of charge, we offered it. And the percentage of talent that really took up this offer until now, and we're now, I think, well, a couple of months, half a year, maybe even longer ahead, is 7%. 7 out of 100 talent took up the offer, the free offer for enhancing their skills. Wow, that's data. It's also data that needs analysis. Analysis with others that also can, pro can, can offer us the insights why this is so low and what we have to do to enhance this, because this is not only for us, this is for the labor market. So data, yes, evidence-based, share, and then evaluate and move on with a, a, a true and open conversation about what's happening on the labor market and what needs to be addressed. Thanks. Thank you. Um, let me uh, turn to you, Andy, because you were talking there about different global trends. You were mentioning Australia, Ireland and so on. I mean, what sort of data do you need to compare these things? And is comparison with, with, with you know, between different uh, countries or within the EU, between different member states, a way, a, a, an effective way of evaluating what what more is needed from a policy perspective? I think if you use data to fill that that area that I talked about before about leading with the needs. So for instance, if you take a, a country like the Republic of Ireland, where they have a ongoing skill shortage, okay, and a staff shortage, they can put that into numbers. So you go to the people who are in recruitment in, in hospitals or in care homes. You can replicate that across any of the other 27 states and include the UK and or the same debate in, in the US and say, well, how are you matching that that debate? Because you, you, you know, we heard right at the beginning about people retiring, coming out of the system. So how do we onboard rapidly? How do we skill up rapidly? But use data that we've got from our, again, going back to the thing I talked about, that group of stakeholders. So. I'll give you a heads up. We, we're covering the whole area of data with our data on the Digital Health Society. And I'll put something on social media about that. We're, we're having a, a Digital Health Society Summit on the 23rd, 24th of November, which will feature some of these pertinent issues around sharing data across the European space and obviously wider across our global connector as well. So that's something I think we're, we'll, we'll help publicize through partners here. But Using that data and sharing that data is quite easy because when you're in, in, in a scenario where as a hospital, you need to lose 100 people on a Friday night and put them back out into the community because you've got another 150 coming through the front door, they're going to be able to tell you quite quickly what their needs are in terms of staffing. So always go back to that principle, lead with a need, and you'll be able to find some decent solutions and best practice for 
especially around data. Well, since we are talking about data, let me, uh, Elisa, ask you um, a question regarding um, what sort of information we have on sectors that are a big shortage. Because we've seen, for example, we hear very, very well, I do as, as a tech journalist primarily, hear a lot about the shortage of digital skills in Europe and these massive numbers, I think it's something like 700,000 unfilled positions because people are not skilled enough to, to take them. I mean, what do we do about that in terms of onboarding people who may be not the typical candidate for those sorts of roles? Well, um, I mean, there's a lot of... Uh, Anna-Marie mentioned the, the upskilling and reskilling uh, opportunities. One of the issues around this, of course, is the barriers to, to taking part in those. And I think that's something that we definitely need to look into. And because there are, of course, uh, socioeconomic uh, um, issues around that, but there's also sort of even related to the work itself. In terms of um, relatively few adults actually participate in formal education and training that is leading to a recognized qualification, and yet these uh, qualific formal qualifications have many benefits for workers, especially when they want to change jobs. Um, formal qualifications are well known and transparent to, to the workers and uh, to the employers and therefore they help the workers in making their skills visible and at the same time uh, formal education and training is usually underpinned by strong quality assurance systems which is less the case for non-formal training and that's also something that we that uh, needs to be taken into account from our side we think that vocational education and training could play a particular role in this respect because assuming that these uh, these programs are well designed they develop skills that are immediately relevant to the labor market and um, these programs can support workers who want to change jobs uh, for example because the green and digital skills uh, transformations are reducing job opportunities um, in their sectors or occupation and vet can also support workers um, in upskilling in their own occupation uh, several countries have uh, actually implemented um, uh, specific higher-level VET programs with that objective in mind. And, of course, the typical countries of Austria, Germany and Switzerland with their Meister qualifications, uh, they offer a combination of higher levels, uh, technical and professional skills, entrepreneurial skills uh, that are required to run a small business and skills and training apprentices. Um, and so that's something really that could be looked into. Well, thank you, Elise. Let me uh, also point out that um, the OECD Skills Outlook, uh, we've put the link there in the chat for our viewers, as well as the Randstad Sustainability at Work 2021 study. So if people are interested, you can follow those links and check out the details. Uh, I also, again, encourage the audience to please do use the chat function if there's a particular burning question or something that you want one of our panelists to elaborate on. Guy, we've just there been talking about um, skill shortages in certain areas. Do you have a, a feeling or, or, or a sense of which industries could benefit from, from being more proactive in their recruitment or where you feel that um, why these skill shortages happen in certain areas if from, from a employer side uh, rather than a uh, employee side? Well, it's, it's difficult to tell. Uh... I think there, there, uh, every uh, branch needs uh, uh, skilled people, and um, I think uh, 
from uh, point of view of the sports sector, uh, we need uh, more skilled people uh, in, in, in professions uh, where uh, physical uh, uh, they have where physical uh, work is hard. Um, um, for, well, um, in Belgium, for example, we ha we have a lot of oil industry uh, companies uh, and, and big oil companies, and they uh, big plants in in Antwerp, for example. And um, for their employees, they provide Apologies for that break in service. As I say, we're all getting used to the new way of doing things and uh, these technical hitches do happen. Um, Guy, you were, you were mid-flow there. I, I wonder, can we, uh, can we pick up where we left off? I think it was, was only a couple of uh, seconds of, of, of what you were saying that we missed. So perhaps I'll go back to you. You were discussing about uh, labour shortages in specific sectors and, and what... Uh, what happens either from a supply side and a demand side? Well, yeah, there, there are some some labour shortages. That's that's for sure, of course. And in every branch, industrial branch, um, uh, an, an attractive an attraction uh, an attractive point uh, for for companies is um, uh, well, we we can see it when we. Uh, uh, recruit people uh, in Belgium, for example, uh, when two companies uh, are uh, candidates to uh, recruit uh, one guy uh, and that company uh, facilitates uh, physical, physical activity, provides uh, sports infrastructure, well, most of the time that uh, particular company uh, gets uh, the, 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 the benefit uh, and, and will be chosen by by the candidate. So um, uh, it's 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 an attractive point for for companies. Uh, it's uh, when they have that uh, sports uh, and uh, physical activity environment. Uh, well, they can uh, retain uh, workers, of course, but they can also attract uh, new staff. And uh, for them, also, it's it's an it's a dynamic image they get. Uh, in, uh, it's a sportive image. So, uh, image-wise, it's uh, uh, very important for for those companies. But then, uh, in doing so, uh, I, I, I said that we we need evidence-based material on the benefits of uh, providing a, a good, uh, balanced well-being uh, program including uh, sports activities, physical activity. And uh, on, on, on that basis, uh, evidence-based material, I, I think we, we lack enough material in, in that field. Um, okay, uh, maybe this is uh, uh, material for future studies. Uh, I, I am aware of a few studies only uh, performed by uh, local uh, companies and companies in America 
on, on, on the benefits of uh, uh, physical activity. Um, uh, but okay, uh, that's maybe uh, something we can discuss with uh, uh, the European Commission, for example, uh, to point out a new Erasmus Plus program or whatever. Uh, so, but we need definitely uh, new uh, new material and new data. Absolutely. Well, the Erasmus Plus program is something, of course, of a, of a highlight for, for the EU project. Um, since we're talking about skills, Andy, perhaps you could make the link between skills and pay and conditions and what the interlinkage is there. Yeah, we, we've got a lovely group of programmes within the European uh, space around skills already. We've got the fantastic Erasmus Plus programme, which we take part in as project partners in many different spheres. We have the, you know, the, the really high skill programmes delivered by the European Institute for Innovation and Technology, the EIT, as part of their programme, and many, many others. But don't answer the big question which is if you're a carer or a paid carer, an unpaid carer or a paid carer, um, you're not valued. You're not valued in terms of the way that we design programmes for highly skilled people in the, in, the, in the sector, as much as if you're somebody who provides basic levels of care. And if you ask, if you speak to people who provide those levels of care, they're paid a pittance, okay? Because as a society, we don't have that value for what we class as social care. That, that those people that go in and change your parents and feed them and wash them, those people that hold the hands of people as they move as volunteers between hospitals, those people that provide that personal care, don't get paid. They, they don't get paid. And if they do get paid, they get paid the minimum wage. And their training is not provided um, as part of their workflow. They usually have to skill themselves up. So it's about valuing that pay, valuing the conditions of those people who provide what I class as the underpinning skills, the underpinning elements that prop up what in many countries is a, is a groaning health system. That needs looking at. And that's not a problem in England, or France or Belgium, that's a European problem and one that we as, as a continent need to think about addressing because it's, a, it's, it's, it's those people that impact on us probably the most personally and we don't value them. As a follow-up, Andy, I mean, I, I absolutely hear what you're saying. Do you think there's been a change because of the COVID pandemic? I mean, we saw at least a superficial shift to clap for carers. We saw across Europe uh, people out banging pots and pans to, to celebrate the work that healthcare workers were doing. Uh, we also heard you know, about essential workers and frontline workers, and it became a, a knowledge that when our supermarket shelves were empty, suddenly people started to value, value shelf stackers. And there is, is there a shift? Is there with the worst of clouds, a silver lining there that perhaps it's been a wake-up call? I think there's two pictures to that. One is as a positive picture. Yes, there's been an awareness that there are people there. And I, th I think if you've ever been into a hospital, you suddenly realise that all those people around you may not necessarily speak your language. Okay, And you think, why is that? 
Why, why, why do we not pay enough for uh, people to come in here? We are relying on cheaper labour. So there's a whole issue around that. Secondly, on a positive note, there is an, ex an understanding that there's a growing group of people who have put their lives on the line. As we, as nations, not just in any one country, emptied out our hospitals, rightly or wrongly, into the community, it was those people that, and we've got stories going back as long as, as, as we want to, are those people who wouldn't go home to put their family at risk from work because they needed to stay in work and care for those elderly people who were coming out from hospital. Those people that camped within the care home setting because they couldn't risk taking the virus back home, but knew they needed to come into the workplace. And you ask as a society, do we value that? I'll put it back to the audience. How much of a rush are you into to take off your mask, to go back into crowded spaces and not do what we've been told to do? Um, and, and then there, I think therein lies the answer. Well, Anne-Marie, I want to stay a little bit, unfortunately, with the topic of the pandemic and, and how that has caused uh, employment shifts and, and working practices shifts. Um, I asked Andy whether there might be a, a silver lining from a perspective of social value. Do you see any silver lining from a perspective of employment opportunity? Oh, yes, absolutely. A lot. Uh, um, it, uh, as I think um, Elisa said, uh, that the labor market, the economy is in a flux. Uh, so a flux has positives, um, negatives of, as well, uh, the, for instance, polarization. But there is a lot of positives. We, we see shortages everywhere. Um, and we see a lot of transitions and we see a labor force that is willing, uh, that is willing to reflect about transitions. I think there's some, um, I think Microsoft had a, a research in the US, 40% of employees is thinking about changing position. Um, that's a worry for employers, um, uh, empl employers, but it's also great for the labor market huh? because you can enhance your position, you can add skilling, on the job skilling. So to me, it's, it's, it's actually a plus, uh, it's positive, but, uh, and then I'm repeating myself, which I will not do, but we have to address the, the labor market playing field, the structure, the scene setting, the policies, because otherwise um, it might fail. Elisa, uh, again, to come to you about the, the, the impact of the pandemic, that has affected not only people in the workplace, but those training for the workplace. Um, do you foresee perhaps a, a, a lost generation, as it were, or, or, or a setback for those of a particular age, whether they be approaching exams at, at secondary level or tertiary level, going to, through studies that have been disrupted? Uh, yes, I mean, this is something I think that the, the the scale of the learning losses is something that we might be still looking at for, for years to come. So definitely there is uh, something there. There are countries where uh, schools have been closed uh, for many months. There are countries where schools are still closed, uh, um, perhaps outside the EU, but that does exist. And so we're looking into, into that. The learning uh, losses may be very um very large there's also going back to the to the um, um learners who are in also vocational education and training they also lost a lot of opportunities of 
uh, workplace placements and training at the workplace. And that's something that not only has been lost, but also we may see in the in the near future as well uh, impact in terms of the uh, places that are uh, available and also because of social distancing there are some works as well that cannot be hap can, can can't happen so that definitely has happened as well um, we tend to try to see as well the opportunities we think for instance that the uh, the really rapid digitalization is something that is going to help uh, actually transform some of the uh, learning uh, at the moment, it's been a switch to the screen, if you will, but the idea is that also the learning practices as well move into the digital world with a lot more opportunities for more targeted and more uh, granular type of support for students. So that's something really coming from, from the education side. And then um, that's something that also, of course, in terms of the workplace as well, um, coming back to, to the teleworking and also perhaps, uh, as Anna-Marie was saying, seeing this is an opportunity perhaps in, in terms of opening up uh, the positions to, to a larger uh, public that is not necessarily based directly in, in the city where the companies are and sort of the, the skills pool might be larger. So those, those are some of the sort of give and take that might be coming out of it. Well, Guy, we've seen obviously with the pandemic that workplaces have had to take very seriously the health of their employees in terms of a potentially life-threatening illness. Do you think that will spill over into taking more care in general terms of, of, of not so much health versus unwellness, but health and wellness? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Uh, uh, that. Uh, well, the pandemic, uh, in, in, in a certain way, has been a blessing, <laughs> if I can say so. Um, uh, I only can agree to, to what you are saying. Uh, um, uh, I was just thinking about uh, all the aspects uh, uh, before continuing with your question. Uh, when you asked about uh, shortages uh, in certain sectors, uh, I was uh, just thinking about teachers in Belgium. We need a lot of teachers in schools. Um, uh, at, at, at the moment, uh, uh, we, we, we ask uh, retired teachers to come back to school and to help uh, the people over there. Uh, I heard today or yesterday in the news that there was a school in Belgium, a small school, that uh, temporarily had to cl close down uh, the doors because of the uh, the lack of teachers. So uh, that's uh, an answer to your question you asked me <laughs> before. Um, but then, yes, uh, I totally agree uh, about your question. Uh, uh, um, can you repeat it uh, again? <laughs> because I am. Well, I think that the question was whether, I mean, you, as you said, there are silver linings to the pandemic and whether being forced to take illness seriously, does that mean companies will be forced to take the wellness of their employees seriously? Yeah, of course, obviously, uh, because uh, well, staff is the most uh, precious asset of a company, more, more, more important than state-of-the-art buildings. Uh, so uh, company leaders, they have to take care of, of, their, uh, of their staff. Uh, 
you have to do all to 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 keep them uh, happy and feel good and 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 healthy of course and and our uh, activities in the field of company sport can help to that uh, well the, the the retirement age has been extended so people have to to stay fitter stay fit longer than than before so um, yeah sure um, uh, we have to do our company leaders have to do everything they can to to get their uh, uh, staff uh, healthy and keep them healthy uh, for as long as possible well as as you can hear i'm desperately looking for a silver lining to to what has been a horrible couple of years um we've got a question from our audience philippe ferreira is asking Considering that not all European member states have the same preponderance to develop programs that empower workers, how can harmony be encouraged? And it sort of feeds in to what I wanted to ask you, because I wanted to ask about public-private partnerships, collaboration between government-funded or state-funded or or municipality-funded programs, and how companies can get involved in that. Elisa, perhaps you could talk to me about whether you think there is a synergy um, in different countries or whether there's a way that there's a good model for governments working together with um, companies to develop, I suppose, as Philippe puts it, this harmony for, for a better workplace. Yes, I think there is. I think that the examples that Manuela earlier uh, presented are really very, uh, the really good ones. Uh, the European Commission is really at the forefront of uh, with the Pact for Skills. And uh, and so I think there are there are enough good examples to look into. Um, there's of course, depending on the sectors, we see that this is moving uh, rather fast or slower. So that also is another uh, another level to look into at the sectoral level. But certainly, uh, in terms of harmonization and in terms of being really at the forefront of some of the uh, examples to look into and looking forward, is really the European Commission, I would say. Well, thank you. Um, Amarie, do you agree? Uh, I, I couldn't agree more. And indeed, I was also going to refer to the European Commission uh, that there's excellent programs. Skills for PACT is, is excellent. Uh, I already repeated what she said, unprecedented funding. But with funding alone, you'll not get there. It's, it's also a bit, bit structure again. And I'm also thinking, you know, there is a European PES network. PES is Public Employment Services. They uh, have an institutional role within the European Union um, with, uh, I imagine, uh, policies and targets. Um, This is where you could also speak about how are we going to cooperate but within a framework that there should be more cooperation. There's also a European semester with with targets, could be one of them. So um, setting the scene in terms of of structure and policies in order to incentivize um, uh, cooperation, and also at the same time, always, always capacity building. Uh, We know that some public employment services in, in especially Eastern European countries they, they, they lack funds, they are weak, they, they lack knowledge and expertise. So it's it's a program of, of uh, policies, setting structure, um, strengthening the structure and capacity building. But at the end of the line, we need more cooperation because being segmented as public and private employment services doesn't help the labor market. 
if they cooperate, for me, Anna, you were talking about a silver lining. To me, that silver lining would become sunshine. Thanks. Andy, what was your take on this particular question about involving, if you like, publicly funded schemes in private workplaces? I think we've done, we've seen a number of those examples throughout our ecosystem network in Europe. So you can pick any of our European um, ecosystems, whether they be in Finland or Denmark or, or even in countries such as Spain and, and, and France, where we've built up networks of ecosystems Again, bringing all those stakeholders together I talked about earlier on, because they're already collaborating across the stakeholder, net, you know, the, the, the boundaries we've got, because they're already breaking down those silos, we get to hear from the public sector what their needs are. And then the private sector can talk about what their offering is. And then the public sector in a position where they can tender properly with the knowledge of what's on the market, what provisions there. And also, you get the unique opportunity where the private sector can think, actually, the public sector want this, not that. We need to change our offer. So that, that, that way of breaking down those silos that we have, baked into that ecosystem model, works. So that's the same in an ecosystem in Cluj-Napoca in Romania as it might be for our newest one in, in Moldova, or, if I, or I bring up one in Leeds in, in, in the United Kingdom, or way up in our latest one coming up in Iceland. There's unique opportunities to get the public sector and the private sector collaborating together, connecting the dots, breaking down silos, and to doing transformation together. You talked about silver lining, okay? The silver lining for me, and there is one, was that I think we've woken up to, as Europe, the idea that we need to grow back in a different way and be resilient. And I think the recovery and resilience funds that were talked about earlier on offer a unique opportunity where we've got actual cash to do the things that many countries, whether it's Hungary or Romania or Poland or, or France, have not had the chance to do so. And that's a golden opportunity, better than a silver one. <laughs> well, that's quite a nice, <laughs> nice twist on it. I'll use that in future. Um, Guy, how can public authorities support the development of physical activity in the workspace? It's a similar question, but drawing on your particular background. Yeah, well, uh, well let me first say that uh, uh, mentalities differ from one country to, to the other, of course. Uh, in the, for example, in the Scandinavian countries uh, where sport is embedded in the DNA, uh, it's not a question of shall we implement uh, physical activity in the workplace, but what, we, what, what can we do more? Um, well, uh, on, the, on the European level, uh, I think the EU could be essential in providing uh, a kind of legal framework for companies to implement and uh, facilitate sport as a, an, an educational and well-being tool. At this moment, what companies are, yeah, are working individually and, and, and a legal framework would kind of help them, I think. Uh, well, uh, in France, for example, uh, the, the, the family doctor uh, is authorized to uh, prescribe sport uh, instead of medicine to, to cure, for example, mental issues. 
why not introduce this system in the whole of Europe? And, and then to move to a local uh, basis, uh, uh, local authorities, they can help um, companies by taking simple measures, for example, uh, uh, such as uh, reducing prices in the local sports hall. Um, I have the experience in, in Brussels here uh, when uh, organizing uh, a, a volleyball competition and uh, I need to uh, have a lot of sports halls to uh, to to yeah to organize those activities. Um, it's very difficult to get a, a, a sports to have a room in the sports hall before ten o'clock in the evening. How can you expect from company workers uh, to? Uh, start their game at 10 o'clock, their uh, business hours are until 6 o'clock in the evening. What do have, they have to do then between in between, between 6 o'clock and 10 o'clock? So uh, there is uh, a lot of flexibility asked uh, from, from local authorities. Um, uh, so uh, uh, I think, uh, um, why, not, why not open the, the sports halls uh, exclusively exclusively for the companies between six and seven in the afternoon. Uh, the rest of the day, of course, is reserved to the schools and to uh, the local sports clubs. But uh, maybe this is a simple, a simple, uh, it's not a simple thing to do, but uh, maybe they should think about that. Uh, uh, that's, uh, well, it's 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 an overall uh, problem problem in, in Belgium in Belgium, you know. But uh, uh, but I, I think the European Commission, the EU, can can do a lot not about this local problem, of course, but about uh, uh, getting uh, help for the assistance for the for the companies. Well, thank you. We have uh, another question from Oana Jacob for uh, from our audience. Um, and I think it's quite a good one, actually, to end on because I'm conscious of time and there actually are other questions, but they're a little bit, uh, I don't think we're going to have time to get to them. Um, but she's asking, what are the top three skills that will be most valuable for workers in five to ten years? Uh, and I will add to that, and why? Um, I think that might be a good place to wrap up and you can give your closing thoughts as well uh, within that. Um, Amory, um, I'm, I'm interested, you, you obviously have a, a forward-looking idea about what may be those skills? Uh, you meaning the skills for the future? It's most valuable for workers in five to ten years. Oh, <laughs> yeah, of course, digital skills. Uh, that, that, that's, uh, we, we all, there's digitalization, uh, the robotization. We need to master those digital skills. Uh, that, that's evident. It's, it's like reading, writing, calculation, uh, digital. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's on the same level. Uh, let me be clear. Uh, but um, th there's more. Huh? It's, it's hard and soft skills. And for sure, and we've all, all, all been reading about that too over the last years. And it's, it's still evident. It's still true. Soft skills are so important. Empathy, teamwork, collaboration, um, and expert, being an expert. So 
Yeah, investing in, and and we've been talking about that investing in yourself as as talent as a worker being aware of what's happening on the labor market and calculating your possibilities and basing your your training on that. So it's also very much a responsibility of talent. I hadn't said that, but that's something and maybe an inconvenient truth, but that's something we should also be aware of. Thank you, Anne. <laughs> Ending on an inconvenient truth there. Andy, what are your final thoughts, your, your takeaways that you want to leave people with? Three skills. Helping people to uh, get connected. Okay. Whether that's with a mobile phone, local device, uh, their own home, IoT devices, etc. So that, 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 Person who can help press buttons, connect things up, etc. Skill number one. Skill number two. That's important because, uh, for, for obvious reasons, because many of the people we deal with will have issues around connectivity. Skill number two is uh, awareness of the services that are around that will help prevent people from having to go into formal care and hospital. So that's a bit of knowledge, building up knowledge and skills about how to access those services. That prevents people from going to hospital, saves us lots of money. It's nice. Lastly, I, I speak as someone who's worked in the care sector for a healthcare sector for 30 X years. Um, listening skills are as vital now as they've always been. If you're working with people, you need to remember you've got two ears and one mouth. Thank you, Andy. I mean, that's that's what we tell kids. <laughs> we, we don't want them to say too much, but I think it's it's worth uh, worth bringing to the workplace. Guy, uh, briefly, your wrap-up thoughts, because we, we are short of time. Well, wrap-up thoughts. Uh, well, it, uh, I think, as I said before, the, 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 the pandemic has been a blessing because of uh, we have to reset the, the mindset uh, of, of all of us. Uh, we have to, to push ourselves, to stimulate ourselves, to be more active outside of our job. So um, uh, this, this, well, this, this has been a, a trend now uh, of increased sports participation. And I hope uh, this trend will, will continue and, and be a motivation for, uh, for companies to invest more in the field of uh, physical activity and well-being in, in general. Thank you, Guy. And Elisa, the last word falls to you. Uh, what would you like people to take away from our discussion today? Thanks. Um, well, of course, I mean, I think the foundational skills are not something that we should uh, set aside just because we've gone through this recent event now with the pandemic. So the foundational skills around numeracy and, and literacy and so on remain. Of course, the digital skills, as Anna-Marie said, uh, or the second one to look into. And, and digital skills, really, we need to think about not only mastering technically, but also processing information. And then, of course, what is called the, the soft skills or what we prefer to call as transversal skills, which are related to um, uh, resilience, creativity, innovation, uh, working in teams, um, flexibility, all of that, of course. And I think also, just as a final point is, it's not just the onus doesn't only fall on the on the worker to gather these skills, but also on the employers to recognize and nurture and upskill their workers around in these skills. Thank you very much, uh, Elisa, Andy, Guy, Anne-Marie. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for your input today. 
I know the time has been short. We didn't even get on to things like the gig economy and, and so forth, which we could probably have talked about for another hour or so. But I also appreciate your audience attention and those questions, including the ones that we didn't get a chance to answer. Thank you very much as well to All Policies for a Healthy Europe, our media co-partner in this event. You can follow them online at WellbeingEU. And if you want to continue this debate on social media, do use the hashtag #HealthyEurope. That's it for now, but do join your active again soon for another debate.